Welcome to the one and only Interior Design Book Podcast. Decorating by the Book, hosted by Susie Chase from her dining room table in New York City. Join Susie for conversations about the latest and greatest interior design books with the authors who wrote them. Hello, my name is Caroline Clifton Mogg, and I am the author of The Comforts of Home, which is a book I wrote about thrifty and chic decorating ideas, making the most of what you have, which must be a good lesson for life. Last year, I had some blue and white toile wallpaper hung on the wall behind my bed. It was a very, very small change, but it made such a big difference in my bedroom. It changed the whole room. The Comforts of Home is all about the small changes that can make a big difference in our home. So how did you get into interior design and writing? Well, looking back at it, which I was thinking about, I was the child who had the doll's house when I changed it around every day or every week, even when, you know, the furniture was the little matchboxes and things. So there must have been something there. But professionally, I got into it. I was working at Condé Nast in London and writing reports on shops. And Brides Magazine had a new editor, who was the wonderful Drusilla Bifus, who asked me if I'd like to have a go at writing about interiors. What an opportunity. I had no idea what an interiors editor did. But I realized I've been given the best chance in the world. Then I went to a Sunday newspaper, and then I went to Harper's and Queen, where I had the unimaginable luxury of writing about anything and anybody I wanted to, as long as it was interesting. Dream job, really. So that was how I got started. I've heard you say you think interior decoration has become far more important in people's lives. I'd love to hear about that. Well, in this country, at least, uh, interior decoration for a long time was considered rather like food was, rather bad form to talk about. You know, you didn't go to a dinner or to somebody's house and remark on their pictures or their, in the same way, it was considered terribly rude to say that you liked eating it and how was the pudding made and so on. Um, it was just there. After the war, interior decorators here was, had to go in to grand houses through the servants' entrance. Um, and I think in the U.S., It was considered a smart and indeed an essential thing long before here. And now it is, which is great. But it was sort of almost infradig, really. It sounds odd. You also talk in the book about the word comfort and how it's used lightly these days. But for centuries, and this is what I learned in your book, there was no such word. Now I feel like we're all consumed with comfort everywhere in our homes, in our cars, in our mindset. Can you chat a little bit about the concept of comfort? Well, when I said there was no such thing, the word comfort originally um, meant to add strength, to console or to soothe, you know, and used as a noun um, in, the, in the sense of she was my comfort. Um, and from then it slowly, very slowly, uh, developed into having this other meaning of, well, I think actually it's a bit to do with, by the 18th century, uh, the French had started to make comfortable chairs, which was, you know, the, in England they were still making chairs with hard backs and so on, and suddenly the French started to make upholstered chairs. And if you look at those paintings of the 18th century, you see people sort of reclining in chairs and reading in chairs. And that was 
as far as I can see, the beginning of comfort in the sense that we understand it now. Thinking about comfort and thrift, they're not awkward bedfellows as long as you keep the original meaning of comfort in, in your planning because it's all about making people feel welcome. I think that's really important and inviting and warm, which isn't at all the same thing as being extravagant. And I think comfort equates with generosity, making those who come to your house feel comfortable so that when they walk in, they think, oh, this is nice. Oh, look, either something to look at or somewhere to sit. Just generosity, which doesn't mean money. Yeah, it doesn't mean a mansion. No, and it doesn't mean, you know, Dom Perignon Champagne, although how nice is that? It means somebody being pleased to see you. That's a sort of strange definition of comfort, but I think it's quite pertinent, actually. It's a feeling. Yes, it's a feeling. It's a feeling, that's what I mean, it's a feeling of welcome. You know, the house or the flat, the apartment is welcoming you. You relax as you walk in. In The Comforts of Home, you wrote, Home is always important, but during uncertain times, when the wind seems to blow a little colder outside, people's thoughts often turn towards the idea of home. Sometimes a specific known place, but sometimes just a feeling, an image of somewhere that is always warm and safe with the curtains tightly drawn against the storm outside. So what does home mean to you. Did the home you grew up in inform the home you live in today in Notting Hill? Home to me is definitely a feeling of security and warmth. My early childhood was uh, spent in a house about an hour outside London on the River Thames. And there was a swing in the garden, apple trees, hens. And my parents decorated the house in what I now see as a very English style, so muted colours, um, linen floral patterns on the chairs and sofas, but very nice ones, very muted, sort of pale colours everywhere. And I see now that I still do that in my flat in Notting Hill. Almost country in the city is my look now, and that definitely started when I was a child. Plus, I love dolls' houses. Do you still have your old dollhouses? Well, no, I don't have the one I had when I was little. But when we first moved to Notting Hill in the early 1980s, I actually did persuade, is the better verb, my husband to commission a doll's house of the house we then lived in, which was made by um, a man in Bath. Wonderful house. And I spent the next few years going to all these dolls' house fairs and buying or commissioning even little pieces for it. I don't have it here because it's too large to get in this flat. So my daughter's got it in Buckinghamshire. And sometimes I go and look at it and move the furniture around again. Great joy. (laughs) I love that so much. (laughs) Well, you know that um, dolls' houses were originally designed in the 17th century, I suppose, uh, to teach young girls who are getting married how to run a house. And, and they were sort of educational. I mean, those ones in the wonderful museum in Amsterdam, uh, you, you can see that they were used to teach housekeeping skills, you know, how the kitchen should be organized, how the bedrooms. And I think that's wonderful. Wish they did it now. There are two sections of this book. There's one, the elements, and the other is the rooms. And in that section, you write, a comfortable kitchen is almost always decorative, not only because of all the fancy paint effects, but because of all the interesting and attractive things on view. Some that have practical function, others that are displayed purely for their charm. Really comfortable kitchens, 
even if they have been decorated professionally, tend not to look as if they have been thought out a great deal. Instead, they often give the impression that their owner has left out pieces, functional, practical, and decorative, that he or she really likes and takes pleasure in having around. I would love for you to chat about kitchens. You know, we went through that. I don't know whether it's still in the U.S. I don't think it is. That phase where kitchens were designed to look like laboratories and anything that uh, didn't go with the sort of streamlined or spaceships almost was removed or put in a cupboard. And I found even at the time that very uncomfortable, actually, the exact opposite of comfortable. I think that kitchens, you know, what I mean about the pieces you have around, many, the bowl, the spoon, these are really old designs. They've always been there and they've always been, well, they haven't always been there, but they've been there since they were first made. And they were made for practical reasons, not for decorative reasons. But there's a great beauty in them. You know, if you think about a wooden spoon or a, a mug full of wooden spoons or good, solid bowls, I mean, they're just beautiful on their own. And so I think that that's the first element of having a kitchen that's good. I think the other element is to stop thinking about a kitchen as simply somewhere where you're cooking and which is um, simply somewhere where split, splat, splof. I think you should have pictures in it. I think you should have colour in it. I think you should have flowers, obviously. I think you should have small lamps if you can. I think you should have a chair if you've got a big enough kitchen, even better a sofa, even better still a fireplace. Wow. So that the room becomes somewhere you actively want to be. And again, you enjoy the whole process of making, cooking and feeding, which is comfort again. There is nothing I love more than small lamps in a kitchen. Almost yes. like almost like a candle that's lit exactly. and you exactly. pour yourself a glass of wine. It's just so nice. Exactly. Well, I think this is, the, you know, there is a trend now, thank goodness, towards making um, the kitchen more a room like another sitting room, like a reception room. And as more and more people uh, don't have dining rooms and they eat in a kitchen or part of the kitchen, I think it's really important to make that room a room that is pleasant to come into, not somewhere, just where the steak is being fried. I've got several small lamps, actually. I can look through the door. I've got one, two, three, four, five lamps in there, but we do eat in there as well. So, Oh, I love it. Now, do the lamps match or are no. they all different? No, 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 no. Don't have matching lamps. No, no, no. <laughs> but I think the odd pair, but I'm very keen on if you buy lamps by the pair, which sometimes one does, not necessarily putting them together, putting them around the room. So again, the eye is taken from... It's not you. It's not seeing the expected. It's seeing the unexpected, and I think that's very important. I would love to hear the story about the time you went to the auction with a friend on a quest for two small bedside tables. Well, I've never forgotten this because it really made a point in my mind. This friend rang and said, "Oh, you know, it is just I just haven't got decent bedside tables. I need two. And Christie's at the time, had a, um, a sort of number two auction house in South Kensington where they sold stuff that wasn't sort of super, super expensive. So I said, oh, well, let's go and look. There's a furniture sale this weekend. We might find something. So we went, and there was nothing there, or it was too expensive. And she has a little house in Primrose Hill, which is a very pretty area of London, and it's sort of on one to three floors. And I thought, hmm, and there's a lot of stuff in the house, you know, a lot of books. She's a writer and a lot of... 
So I said, why don't we just check that there's nothing in the house? So we went back to the house. We walked slowly up. And, you know, under one of the piles of books, holding the books, obviously, was a table that was sort of hidden behind a door. So I thought, oh, that might work. And then we went up another flight and she had a, a guest bedroom. And in the guest bedroom, again, sort of not exactly behind the door, but in a hidden corner was another table. And I said to her, why don't we use these? We can always put the books somewhere else. And she said, ah, fantastic. I'd never thought of that. And so we took them into the main bedroom, put them in, and they were absolutely perfect. And it made me realize that you lose the ability to look around in your own place. It takes a new eye sometimes, but also your own eye. You know, you don't notice. I'm, I'm probably the same with you possibly that you after a while you don't notice things because you put them there they work you get on with your life but actually sometimes it's very worth going around picking them up putting them somewhere else and see how it looks you can always move them again and i think you also need that friend with a good eye yes or just a different eye mm-hmm. you know a, an eye that is looking anew at something another decorator's tip or cliche is that nothing rejuvenates a room quicker than new cushions or lampshades. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I say it's a cliche because every decorator you ever speak to always says that. And, of course, it is true, actually. I mean, replacing lampshades can be quite expensive, but putting new cushions in uh, can be not expensive. And actually, the same thing as we've just been talking about the tables, quite often you can just move cushions from somewhere, sorry, pillows, (laughs) uh, from somewhere and put them somewhere else. And they completely change things. Or you can have, you can buy different covers and have um, winter and summer cushions, which I must say I do. I've got linen covers that I put on um, the sofa in the drawing room in the summer. And then underneath those, because I'm lazy and can't be bothered to take them all off, there are um, velvet covers which come on in the winter and look very nice and inviting and, again, comfortable. Lampshades, yes, of course. But as I say, I think you need a much bigger budget to do that. We live in a smallish apartment in New York City in the West Village. Super cute. But I have all blue lamps, different shades of blue. They all have black lampshades on them. It's the black with the gold inside. So it kind of brings all of my lamps together. What is your favorite kind of lampshade? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, what I don't like, <laughs> better way to go around, I don't like any more those pleated um, silk or would-be silk ones in cream, only because I think they've become so ubiquitous again a cliche in themselves and i just think they're boring so i like um, parchment lampshades or card lampshades or even those very nice floppy lampshades that you can buy now that almost look as if somebody's just thrown a handkerchief or a scarf over a lamp Uh, i like that a lot anything actually that isn't pleated silk i think yours sound terrific on a little dining table i've got I have one with a gold painted inside because it's so nice, the um, reflection down onto the table. Yes. 
I love that. You know, the floppy one, I'm always afraid it's going to catch on fire because it feels like it's just sitting on the bulb. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. But they're usually over a sort of card base or something, aren't they? I don't think they'd catch on fire any more than a sort of other aligned lampshade would. <laughs> I have so many old quilts and you have some clever uses for old quilts. I'd love to hear about that. Quilts. I use everywhere, actually. I mean, not quite so much now. It was a sort of, again, um, it was when Christie's in South Kensington had these wonderful um, textile sales. And, of course, a lot of things would be in job lots. And you'd go and rummage through. And if you'd see a quilt that you thought you could afford, they quite often came in a lot with a lot of other things. So I'm sure, like you, I wasn't going to not buy the job lot. So I'd buy it and then think, oh, right, I've got, you know, three quilts, five pieces of old shawls, and not all of them in very good condition, but they were all very pretty. So um, I just realized that you can use, well, first of all, of course, you can use quilts for tablecloths, which I think are jolly nice, um, and for picnic cloths, I mean, to sit on, much nicer than sitting on a bit of wool. And then I started folding them, the usual, putting them at the end of beds. And then I thought, well, maybe I could make uh, windows. I've got a window seat in the bedroom, and I thought, well, an old quilt on that would be really nice. So I did that. And um, so that was more or less the quilts. But then the bits of material, I started using them on cushions again, actually, either as a whole cover or if they were quite fragile, putting them sort of cheat, really cheating because I can't sew anyway, um, cutting them out and then sewing them onto the front of the cushion cover that existed. And that worked jolly well, actually. It was nice. And then the other thing you can do with them is to have sort of um, chairs that are covered in more than one textile, which used to, again, be very fashionable, I would think, beginning of the 1900s or so. So you have the back of the chair is one material, and then you have a piece maybe that runs down the front back of the seat and underneath and then you might have even the arms different and if you've got old scraps of things it doesn't sound great but I promise you it can look absolutely wonderful actually. I never think about the idea of comfort when it comes to the bathroom but you remind us that comfort is a long soak in a warm bath with a soothing hot drink and scented candles. You recommend instead of the regular metal bathtub rack we use made to size we use a made to size wooden board. The wood adds such warmth and depth and I have never thought of this. Well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, I think the best sort of bath, if you're lucky enough to have one, is a bath that has a ledge beside it. So the bath is relatively close to the wall, let's say. You've got a sort of ledge. And then you can have everything and just leave it. But if you don't have that, it's pretty uncomfortable being in a bath without something to put things on, including a glass of wine or a cup of, not a cup of coffee probably, but a glass of or a drink. And also it's jolly nice to read in the bath. And I think wood fits that. Where can we find you on the web and social media? You can't, sorry. <laughs> Just because I haven't got around to it. I mean, you see the trouble it's been for me to come on Zoom. Um, everybody keeps saying, maybe I'll do maybe I'll do Instagram. My daughters both keep saying I should do that, but I haven't done it yet. Sorry. I've got one, it occurred to me when I was getting up this morning, getting ready to do this, and now you say you live in the West Village. 
I don't know if this comes into it at all, but um, we lived in the West Village in the 70s for a few years. Just wonderful. We loved it. And I know, I know, I know. And I, my godmother was a very talented artist, and she was staying with us. And she and I were walking down. We lived on Perry Street. And there was, a, you know, you have horizontal shutters quite a lot, which we don't hear. And there was a horizontal pine shutter that somebody had put out for the garbage. And we sort of looked at that, and my godmother said, you know, wouldn't that make a nice bedhead? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so we carried this horizontal pine shutter back to the house, and she painted it using inside the panels. She painted sort of exotic birds, and all around she painted flora, and, and then we um, varnished it. And that was in 1976 or 1977. And I still have it. I've had it expanded as we had larger beds. And it's just sitting in my bedroom now. And I thought that is a classic example, actually, now I think about it, of using something that didn't seem to have any further life in it and making it something that still brings enormous pleasure. I love that so much. Oh, my gosh. Where did you live on Perry Street? We lived at number 43, which had been um, a marbler, a sort of master marbler's house. And so it was a tiny house with little bathrooms on each floor. And he'd done each of these little bathrooms in a different sort of marble. So one, I mean, floor to ceiling, everything. So one was, you know, sort of that browny white marble. Another was that deep pinky one. Another was the black and white one. It's extraordinary. And it had been apparently a house with um, a stable at the back before that. I mean, it was a great little house, actually. Which street do you live in? I live at West 10th and West 4th. Oh, very close. Yes. And, you know, I first moved here from Kansas in 1996, and I had a job in Soho. So I said, I need a place close to my job. I knew nothing about New York City. (laughs) So this real estate agent showed me a place on Perry at 129 Perry. And there were no lights on. It was completely dark. And I said, I love it. I just felt it. I said, Mm. I don't know where I am. Is this safe? And he laughed. He said, this is so safe. <laughs> it's sort of, I mean, we love being there because for me, it was like Europe because, you know, the um, uh, the butcher was Irish, the greengrocer was Italian, um, the shoemender was Polish, and the shop around the corner selling bread and so on was French. So everybody sort of understood without saying that everybody else was European, if you sort of see what I mean. And and it sort of, you didn't feel you were in, I mean, we had a lot of friends who lived high uptown. And I just felt so at home in, in the West Village. And I remember that was the one year there was the great um, blackout. And I was uptown. I think my husband was away. And so I had to get back to Perry, and and I did. And there was the janitor from the next block, which was an apartment, sitting on her step with a torch because obviously she knew nobody would have torches with them because nobody expected to be blacked out uh, so that you could see your way home. And I thought, wow, but this isn't happening uptown. And of course it wasn't. (laughs) No, I don't even go above 14th Street. No, well, you're quite right not to. Oh, well, this has been so wonderful. I cannot thank you enough for coming on my podcast, Decorating by the Book. No, my great pleasure. Follow Decorating by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the one and only interior design book podcast, Decorating by the Book.